0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I want
0: to pick your brain on the truck. Hi,
1: panel. my name's Jenna Johnson.
0: I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 9th. Today, a new way of thinking about gun violence and the little known story behind Elvis's big
2: comeback. Good evening. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By Good evening tonight, everyone, the reaction of
3: so many people today was, oh no, not again, another high school. Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado, this time on the edge of Denver.
0: Sirens, SWAT teams, and the sound of gunfire disrupted the calm of the Virginia Tech campus this morning. we are still getting new details about the suspected shooter, Adam Lanza. Two mass shootings within 13 hours, and now the FBI is warning there could be copycat attacks. There are things that we always talk about after a mass shooting.
4: The gun laws in this country are weak. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun.
0: We talk about gun laws, and we talk about mental health care. We talk about all the different factors that made these shootings possible. But one thing that doesn't come up very much is masculinity. Even though all but three of the 165 mass
2: shootings in modern American history have been committed by men. It feels both obvious and shocking because at this point, mass shootings have become commonplace. And part of that narrative is seeing a male photograph. Nikki
0: DeMarco is a video producer at The Post. She's been reporting on the connection between guns and masculinity.
2: I think the aha moment was a scholarly article I read by a professor named Eric Madfis. And he came up with this theory called triple entitlement. And it's looking at the traits of mass shooters. He found that they were overwhelmingly straight white males. And I think reading that was this light bulb moment. I wanted to understand why men were overwhelmingly committing these massive acts.
0: And so once you started thinking about this and this connection between gun violence and being male— who did you start talking to?
2: There are a lot of people. A lot of them are professors, and some of them are gun owners, but gun owners who are very entrenched in that culture and have spoken about this topic before. We met up with a YouTuber. His name is Josh Cast, and he has a YouTube channel just dedicated to guns, safety tips, um, reviewing different products, things like that.
3: Well, you're from 4 Guys Guns, and today we're going to go over... The new syndicate stuff. Before you do anything, I want you guys to know because I get asked this question all the time. Uh, it's a surefire EB1 with a theorem therm. It's a weird name. Uh, switchback. You can get that on the site.
0: And what did he say about how he feels about the fact that gun culture is so rooted in masculinity?
2: He definitely sees it. Like he. He acknowledges that that is something that is a fact, but he does not really see it as much of an issue.
3: I think the reasoning for why more men own guns than, than women is, it goes, again, back to genetics. It's, we're, we're hardwired to do certain things in life. So if you are genetically wired to protect the herd, protect the tribe, to, you know, hunt, gather, you're going to see more men owning firearms than you would women simply for that fact alone.
2: And... For him, when you bring up the fact that men are overwhelmingly committing gun crimes, he sees it more as a statistical thing than a cultural thing. Men own the guns, and therefore, that's who's committing gun crimes. He does not see it as this big cultural phenomenon.
0: And then you also talked to female gun owners to get their sense of how masculinity plays into this.
2: Yes, we did. We interviewed a woman named Lorinda Bellinger. She lives in Tacoma, Washington. And she is an NRA-certified gun instructor and the chapter president of a group called the Well-Armed Woman for that area of Washington State.
3: Women gun owners aren't, their identity's not so entrenched in owning that gun, you know, as, as some of the men are in the culture. And so they see it as a tool, a simple tool um, to use in in preparing themselves.
2: She initially bought a gun just for safety reasons. She had bought a house and wanted to feel more protected, and it was in kind of, you know, a rural area. And she, you know, as she got more involved in gun culture, she started to realize how the products themselves are more geared towards male bodies.
3: Most firearms are designed for men. The industry was geared towards men. So a lot of guns weren't designed for women's hands. And so um, women need to learn the fundamentals to shoot better.
2: So for her, I think it was this big education in terms of how the industry has really focused predominantly on men.
0: That even like the fundamental design of guns and how they look and how they feel, that's all with men in mind.
2: Yes, absolutely. And even the advertising itself. It's very geared towards men.
3: You are the restless ones. Stirred by rhythms some never hear. You are the keepers of tradition, guardians of the pure.
2: You see these men in these ads who are very muscular or who carry American flags and are in the army. It's very geared towards a certain American image of a man.
3: You are the heart that pulses through this land. The backbone that holds it up and the spirit that moves it forward. It is you who breathe uniquely American meaning into the word.
2: One of the more visceral ads that really shows the connection between guns and masculinity is this Bushmaster ad that came out a few years ago. There's a photo of a assault rifle and the text simply reads, consider your man card reissued.
0: So when you talk to academics and researchers about this, about the link between masculinity and guns and gun culture as like part of a person's identity, what did they say about the reason for that connection?
2: One of the experts we talked to, Scott Melzer, he's a professor at Albion College in Michigan. He has looked specifically at the NRA, but also he's researched society's expectations of men as a whole. And one of the main connections he draws are these traditional ideas of men being breadwinners, protectors, in charge of their households.
4: You know, a big part of uh, of adult manhood is not only being a provider but also being a protector to take care of your family, and that might look like uh, economic protection and providing, but also it might mean physical protection and providing. And certainly that's where we can see guns enter the picture and folks who own and carry guns and thinking it's their responsibility to protect their families, uh, both inside and outside of their homes.
2: A gun can provide a sense of purpose, a sense of that control that you often get from your role in your family as a man or your role as a husband or as a protector of your children. Like a gun can really fill that sense of purpose.
0: How do we see that play out in our culture, the way that guns are about kind of control or about being a protector or about some of these other things that, that, that are considered stereotypically male.
2: It definitely can be as simple as looking at, you know, the media and the entertainment we consume. In the video project, we used examples from John Wayne and old westerns.
5: How
3: about you? You want some of it?
2: To Tony Soprano.
3: Is this how you beg that deer? I wouldn't use a firearm like this on a deer. It's unsportsmanlike.
2: Images of very strong, bold men who use violence as a way to assert who they are.
0: I thought it was also really interesting that you mentioned a sense of control. Mm. Because that's something that I think is a pretty fundamental difference in how men and women experience the world. That women are used to being in situations where they're not in control or not feeling confident in their safety or feeling like their safety is dependent on other people. And I think that in many ways that's just a lack of control is kind of an an intolerable feeling for men. And that owning a gun, carrying a gun, being able to use a gun, being able to talk about guns, that that gives men a sense of, safety and confidence in their own control of their situation in a way that feels really fundamental to to who who they are.
2: Absolutely. I don't think this video could have been timed if it had not been for the Me Too movement, because I think a lot of these conversations started to happen in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein reporting, this idea that women are very used to being out of control and uncomfortable, and men, on the other hand, exert that control and power more frequently. And we especially saw that in terms of guns when it came to looking at who was committing mass shootings, and there was a sense of control missing from a lot of these men's lives. They experience downward mobility. They have had a lot of trouble dating. They feel rejected by women, by society in general, and that sense of not having control can be regained through owning a gun and, in extreme cases, committing a massive act of violence.
0: You use the term downward mobility. Do you mean that in terms of economic mobility as well?
2: I do. And that's something that Jennifer Carlson, our expert from the University of Arizona, really talked about. She did a study in Michigan about the loss of manufacturing jobs and how that correlated with a rise in gun ownership in that state.
1: There was something about sort of this masculine approach to guns that was actually... Very much centered on protection and sort of fulfilling a particular role in the family. Historically, this role has been the male breadwinner, right? So men's head of household position has been defined by their ability to um,
2: provide for the family as providers. How kind of this downturn in a lot of jobs that people depend on, a gap can be filled there when you feel like you're not providing for your family in that traditional way. You can do it through gun ownership.
1: What I found in my interviews with men who carried guns was that this sensibility about socioeconomic insecurity was sort of always always there sort of framing what it means to carry a gun.
0: So what do we do with all of this information? Like, if we know that gun violence is a predominantly male phenomenon— How does that help us understand gun violence? Like, it's not that we can just say, well, all dudes in the world are more prone to violence or that we should be watching out for them or that we shouldn't let them own guns. Like, that seems like a pretty dramatic oversimplification. So how does this help us think about
2: solutions? That's a great question. And you're right. We can't say that all men are committing violent crimes or all male gun owners are dangerous because that's certainly not true.
4: This is not something that's biological or genetic, embedded within us. Violence, especially gun violence, uh, is uh, is tempered, is, is is filtered through society and culture. And so, when we expect boys and men to be dominant, powerful, in control, in charge, to not give in, then we're essentially coaching them, training them, rewarding them for potentially engaging in violence when they feel like they've lost control.
2: When we talk to our experts about about this very question. Um, a few of them pointed to this idea of toxic masculinity and how that's very much being discussed right now. What does it mean to be a boy and a man? And if that conversation continues, hopefully it can include men learning to be more vulnerable and learning to better process their emotions.
1: It's easier to talk about a physical object or a policy we don't like than it is to actually talk about the profound sense of vulnerability that is actually at the heart of of the issue of guns and gun politics and gun violence in this country.
2: When you look at gun violence, you should instead be looking at the great sense of vulnerability that is there. When you talk about it, you're dealing with a lot of trauma, a lot of grief, and if men in our society, could learn to process those things better, It, it could help the tendency to commit violence is essentially what she was saying.
0: And I think that's so interesting because there are so many things that boys learn from very, very young that I don't think that we connect with actual violence, right? That boys are taught to be strong, they're taught to be defenders, they're taught to be protectors, they're taught to be able to hide their feelings in an act of being brave or being courageous. And those seem like positive lessons. But it sounds like in some ways those are also the same kinds of lessons that can build this sense of shame or grievance or fear when a man can't be a protector and can't be strong and can't be brave. And that teaching those lessons is building the type of environment that allows for people to think about guns as the solution to a lot of their problems.
2: Yes, definitely. A lot of those things on their face aren't bad things. We should be teaching boys and girls that being strong is a good thing, and you should protect your friends if they are being bullied. Those are all good things. But when you're only teaching one gender those lessons, and if you're teaching them in a way that is destructive and is not conducive to dealing with emotions, you're going to see that develop in adulthood. And that does not by any means mean that everyone's going to be violent or everyone is going to be an irresponsible gun owner. It just means that it is overwhelmingly going to happen with men.
0: Nikki DeMarco is a video producer for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing from national arts reporter Jeff Edgers. Fifty years ago, Elvis made his comeback.
3: Elvis, in 1969, was in a very interesting place. He had wasted most of the decade making these terrible movies, you know, like Kissin' Cousins and Harem Scarum.
0: What are you doing with my face? That's
1: all right. Good question, friend. Josh Morgan, from Hidden Rock, North Carolina. Then you're kinfolk. Practically Kissin' Cousins. Kissin' Cousins.
3: And they just got worse and worse. So he signed this deal to appear at the International Hotel. He was back as a headliner. He made his return to Las Vegas. And he was opening up the first of what would be 57 shows. Cosmically, we always associate him with Vegas. The jumpsuits, the handkerchiefs. There's something about that whole like, sort of slick, glittery, Vegas look the Cadillac rolling down the strip that we now associate with Elvis this all began this Elvis as Vegas King on July 31st 1969 that's when he first took the stage for this amazing run When Elvis opens the run, this is as star-studded as it can be. I mean, you've got Anne Margaret and Cary Grant and Sammy Davis Jr. And you've got these, you know, very respected journalists who are going to review this show. New York Times, Village Voice, New Yorker. So there's a lot of anticipation and a lot of pressure on Elvis. Elvis was terrified backstage. He didn't want to go on.
5: Talking to Elvis... You know, before the show or leading up to the show, he was very nervous about appearing in Vegas because he had been there before and he didn't do very well.
3: Darlene Love, she was in The Blossoms. She came to the show because she loved Elvis.
5: It was really a magical night because for us, too, it's like, let's see what he's going to do. Backstage, he came up to me and he said, James, I don't know if I can go out there i don't know if i can walk out there and do this man
3: and james burden was the guitarist there that night and the guy that actually put together elvis's taken care of business band
5: and i said sure you can elvis just sing to us man let's uh just uh, forget the audience
3: and that got elvis out on stage
1: well i my soul what's wrong with me i met you like a man on a tree. my friends say i'm acting wild as a bug i'm in love. He
5: came out in these wonderful dumpsuits.
3: And he was, Darlene, he was trim, right? He looked good.
5: (laughs) Yes, he was. (laughs) That's why he was able to wear that bodysuit. You can't find entertainers that would wear a bodysuit because it shows everything you have. He was a, what do you call it, a black belt. I don't know if it was a black belt, but I know he was in the arts, a judo arts. So, you know, he did all of that kind of stuff. You say he actually did those kind of moves while he was on stage.
1: Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Freaky International Hotel with his little weirdo dolls on the walls and his little funky angels. Those little funky eagles, man. I never saw those before.
3: One thing that I found illuminating was listening to these shows, you hear all the chatter inside the songs and between the songs. He's got a real sense of humor. I think he uses that to sort of demystify himself.
1: I'd like to do a song that I just did (laughs) on my recent TV show. It wasn't very good, but... Memories...
5: And I gotta tell you, the audience went nuts. All you could hear was, was screaming, hollering, clapping. We couldn't hear each other. The musicians couldn't hear each other.
3: When you're listening to this set, You can hear occasional screams. And having seen Elvis perform on film, what I what I believe is happening there. And Darlene Love told me
5: he's the one that started that leaning over the stage, you know, taking their handkerchiefs and wiping his face off with
3: him. But to do that, he had to get close to the audience and his microphone is right there. And I think those are moments where he's getting close to an audience member and they're just shrieking into the microphone. I mean, you got to remember when you think about what that audience was like, these super serious critics, I mean... Uh, you know, Nat Hentoff was like a brilliant jazz critic and Robert Kriscow was not someone who suffered fools. It was exhilarating. It was genuinely exhilarating. That's Robert Kriscow.
0: There were pheromones at work there. There were a lot of people, serious Elvis fans for whom this was the second comic.
3: I mean, there's a passage in Kriscow's original write-up of the run that is just, it, it's one of the most enthusiastic things I've ever ever seen him write? Can I read you your paragraph? Do you mind? No. It was Pentecostal. We were cheering before we had fully comprehended what had happened. And by the time it was over, one reporter was standing on her chair and Judy Corman of RCA was shrieking in a most unflack-like manner. Every sclerotic scene-maker in the room evinced a comparable nutsiness. Elvis was quite simply fantastic, his clothes were stylish but not showy. His sideburns swept forward and his hair was just long enough. His baby fat jowls had disappeared. His material was perfect, ranging from That's Alright Mama to Yesterday, but concentrating on the funky stuff. Most of the time, the orchestra was silent. One guy in the back tapped time on his cello throughout the concert, and Elvis's own Memphis country rock band dominated by a drummer named Ronnie Tutt, carried the music. And one more thing, Elvis can really sing. Why did they ever put him in an echo chamber? I'm the
1: king of the jungle call. I'm the king of the jungle
4: call.
0: I mean I think that was the first time I ever fully understood what a good singer he was.
5: Audience was almost like spellbound after the the show was over. You know, a lot of times, as soon as the show is over, people start leaving. Especially in Vegas, they go back out and start gambling and everything again. But everybody moved very slowly. I think they were letting it all sink in. What happened that night? What happened at that show? And the whole the idea that Elvis was on and he was back.
3: This run. You know, Elvis's run in Vegas changed everything for him and for, it changed Vegas. You know, suddenly Elvis, who it seemed washed up at 33 or 34, um, was recast as a star, both in the charts and live. And it started what would basically become the never-ending tour till the end of his life.
5: Just sitting there looking at one another, going over the memory of what had just happened for the last couple of hours. Uh, I don't think there would ever be another moment like that. That everybody has their moment and that was Elvis's moment.
0: Jeff Edgers is the National Arts Reporter for the Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohamed, Ted Muldoon, Maggie Penman, and Jordan Marie Smith. Our intern is Rennie Svernovsky. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.